sadly, now as we move into chapter 5, uh, we're saying goodbye to our buddy Nebi, Nebuchadnezzar. But I thought I would show you this picture. We're going to douse the lights for a minute. I found this artist's rendering of Nebuchadnezzar when he was in his fallen condition, crawling around on the ground and eating grass like a cow. Pretty good rendition, isn't it? You see the long toenails, long fingernails, just like we read about in the book of Daniel over the last couple of weeks. So pretty interesting picture. Of course, we know that Nebuchadnezzar bounced back. He uh, regained his sanity and finally yielded to the God of all creation. But now the clock moves forward in chapter 5, about 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. That's one of the things you need to remember, folks, when you're studying the Bible. And I myself have forgotten at times to keep this in mind, but things in the Bible are very compacted. Kind of like maybe your favorite movie or TV series oftentimes. And if you're not consciously thinking about it, you can forget that sometimes large periods of time have elapsed from one chapter to the next. And so when we're studying particularly the Old Testament, the historical books in the Bible and so forth, sometimes many years go by between chapters, and that's the case here with Daniel. We've just jumped from chapter 4 to chapter 5, some 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom of Babylon, by the way, the first and the greatest, remember Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold in that dream or vision that he had that Daniel interpreted for him about the giant figure, the giant statue of a man. But now as we get into chapter 5, the kingdom of Babylon is about to come to an end. And so the head of gold is about to give way to the chest and arms of silver, which is the Medo-Persian empire under Cyrus. And Cyrus would actually be the one to issue the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. We read about that in Ezra chapter 5, verse 13. Now, secular historical records tell us that this event takes place here in Daniel 5, around 539 B.C. So Daniel was an old man by now, possibly 80 years old or more. So let's pray and we'll jump right into chapter 5. Father God, thank you for this great book of Daniel, great man of God that you used mightily to protect your people, preserve your people during their time in captivity in Babylon, advisor to multiple kings. Lord, we ask that you would just uh, speak to our hearts and minds as we study this passage together, Lord. We thank you that your word has been given to us as our daily bread, our spiritual food, our manna from heaven. We ask you to bless this time of study in your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Verse 1, we see a new king. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Wow. Now, um, before Pastor Chuck Smith passed away, we used to have our annual International Pastors Conference in Southern California there in Marietta at the conference center that Pastor Chuck had purchased and refurbished. It used to be a resort 
for celebrities, movie stars, and so forth that had fallen into disarray. Murrieta Hot Springs. And Pastor Chuck bought that broken down, decrepit resort and just made it beautiful, wonderful. And throughout the year, there was also a Bible college there. Various groups would have men's retreats, women's retreats, and then we would have our annual international pastors retreat there, uh, conference. And our auditorium there could hold right around a thousand pastors. So I can kind of get a visual picture in my mind of this gathering with Belshazzar and a thousand lords. Pretty big group. And they drank wine in the present. He drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And I'm sure the thousand were drinking wine right along with him. So now here we have Belshazzar the king. Now until recently, interestingly, this king was unknown. And again, you have your Bible skeptics. They're always looking for reasons not to believe in the validity and veracity of the word of God. And so Belshazzar, there was no uh, historical, secular historical information about him until fairly recently. But now we've, uh, they've uncovered contemporary records that have been discovered uh, reporting that Nabonidus, who was actually the last king of Babylon, but he entrusted the kingship to his son, Belsharussus, which is Belshazzar. Belsharussus. And then what happened with Nabonidus is he retired to Arabia and made Belshazzar his co-regent. And so that's now been uncovered, confirming once again, the Bible is not only spiritually accurate, it's historically accurate as well, and geographically accurate. The more they uncover things and dig things up with archaeology and so forth, the more it confirms the truth of God's word. Now here's the historical rundown with the kings. Nebuchadnezzar died around 562 B.C. after a 43-year reign. Queen Elizabeth just died after reigning for 70 years. Pretty amazing. But Nebuchadnezzar had a pretty long reign, 43 years. And then he was succeeded by his son, Amal Marduk, or in Jeremiah 52:31, he's referred to as Evil Merodach. How'd you like to be called evil? Well, there is Dr. Evil, I know, from a certain film series, but we have Evil Merodach in Jeremiah 52:31. He ruled only for two years, from 562 to 560 B.C., 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30, Jeremiah 52, 31 and 34. Why did he only reign for two years? Because evil Merodach was murdered in August 560 by Neraglisser, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. This kind of intrigue went on all the time in royal courts all over the world. People ascending the throne through nefarious means. So Neraglisser was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law and evil Merodach's own brother-in-law who assassinated evil Merodach. Then Neraglisser ruled four years, 560 to 556 B.C. In Jeremiah 39, 3 and also verse 13, he is called Nergal Sherezer. So sometimes we have different renderings of these guys' names. But at his death, he was succeeded by his young son, Labashi Marduk, who ruled only two months before he was assassinated. May and June of 556, and then he was assassinated and succeeded by Nabonidus, who reigned for 17 years from 556 to 539. But again, part of that reign was actually 
under the control of his son, Belshazzar, whom we see here in Daniel chapter 5. Nabonidus um, had gone to great lengths to restore the glory that belonged to Babylon under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Such as is often the case after Nebuchadnezzar, things kind of went downhill a bit. Nabonidus worked really hard at restoring the glory of the empire. His mother, Nabonidus' mother, was the high priestess of the moon god at Haran. And apparently because of her influence, he was highly motivated. Nabonidus was highly motivated to restore and expand the Babylonian religion and went to great lengths to restore abandoned temples. And so, as we know, through the influence of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and through God's harsh chastening, Nebuchadnezzar actually became a worshiper of the one true God. But then after he died, again, the Babylonian Empire fell back into idolatry. And so not surprisingly, we find Belshazzar here, Nabonidus' son, involved in full-blown pagan revelry as we witness the end of his reign and the end of the Babylonian Empire. We see how that happens here uh, momentarily, or at least the beginning of it. This message is called the beginning of the end. So they made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So as they were partying, interestingly enough, Babylon was besieged by the Persian army. They had been under siege for a long period of time, but they thought they were secure because the city was encompassed by massive walls, which was often the case with ancient cities. We remember that there was a wall around Jerusalem, but when the Babylonians conquered the people of Judah and took them into captivity, the walls were torn down. This would happen again uh, when Rome, under Titus, the Roman general, came into Jerusalem in 70 A.D., just as Jesus had predicted, and destroyed the city once again. But Babylon was surrounded by these massive walls. They had stored 20 years of supplies inside the city. They were the original preppers. And um, the Euphrates River flowed through the city, providing yet another barrier against the attacking enemy, as well as obviously an unlimited water supply. So they thought that they were safe. They weren't worried that the Persian army was outside the wall trying to get in. It reminded me, again, we, and we've talked about the connections between the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Revelation, even the time of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, chastening when he was crawling around out in the field like a cow or a wild animal. Seven years, just like the seven-year tribulation in the book of Revelation. And I was reminded of this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. I shared an interesting take on this verse with you a couple of weeks ago. I want to go back over that again. Now, we may look around us right now and say, well, people certainly aren't saying peace and safety right now. Everything's just crazy, chaotic. War in Ukraine, wars and rumors of wars, all the things that Jesus predicted would be happening in the last days. The pestilence, the plagues. You know, we have the COVID-19 pandemic and then um, monkeypox, which seems like a, it's kind of fizzling out, but they're trying to make it as big a deal as possible. They're already predicting other 
plagues to be coming upon us. In fact, they're working on them in laboratories all over the world. So it is just a matter of time. So how are we going to get from where we are now to a place where people are saying peace and safety? And I, I came up with a very interesting take on that. And you probably remember what I said. But for so many people in this world, particularly the globalists, the one-worlders, the elitists, the technocrats, the Bill Gates, the Jeff Bezos, and uh, the Klaus Schwabs and all the others, the uh, Anthony Fauci's and you name it. For them, for the vast majority of those folks, the biggest plague on the planet, in fact, you probably could say that even the people running our country right now, the biggest plague on the planet are born-again, Bible-believing, spirit-filled, Jesus-loving Christians. We are now a cancer on the planet, according to them. If you don't know that, then you haven't been paying attention. When I uh, recommitted my life to Christ at 17 years of age, the Jesus movement in Southern California was just getting off to a start, and you were even hearing Christian-oriented music on secular radio. Put your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee, spirit in the sky. It actually, at that time period, in the late 60s, early 70s, on through that next entire decade, it was actually almost cool to be a Christian. Today, it is definitely not cool. Quite the opposite. And so how would we get to this place from where we are now? There's chaos all over the world, economic collapse, food supplies, prices rising, gasoline through the roof, the big push for electric vehicles. And yet they would tell you, but you can't plug it in. And 63% of all electricity is generated by fossil fuels. Did you know that? So what's going to happen when they get rid of the fossil fuels? They won't be able to generate enough electricity to do diddly squat. Are they really that stupid? No. The end game is to paralyze every one of us, to control us, to limit our mobility. Look what they've done with the airline industry. I don't know. I think it's still suffering quite a bit. They've had a lot of pilots retire because of the masking and the vaccinations and all that. The Air Force has grounded a number of their pilots because they found out after they got the vaccination, they started having heart problems and they were afraid they were going to have a heart attack while they're flying the plane. Oops. But you see, if you can't go anywhere because you have an electric car that you can't plug in or you can't afford to buy an electric car and then you're going to take the bus but all the electric buses blew up, that happened back east. I forget what city it was in but they bought a fleet of these electric buses and they all blew up. But it, yes, some of it is stupidity. I've told you before I'll say it again, I'll reiterate it. Sin will make you stupid. Sin will make you crazy. And by the way, I meant to mention this after Pastor Ed was sharing there. But you want to talk about sin making you stupid or crazy. 
One-third of, I'm sorry, I didn't make this up, one-third of Democrats believe that men can get pregnant. You want those people electing your next president? You want those people electing anybody for any office? One-third of those Democrats believe men can get pregnant. If that doesn't confirm that sin makes you stupid, and why do I say sin? Am I saying all Democrats are sinners? Well, all people are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when you have a political party whose platform is based upon abortion at will, anytime for any reason, right up to birth and even beyond, that is sin. That is evil. When you have a party whose platform includes promoting transgenderism, gay marriage, you name it, a hundred different genders, if that ain't stupidity, I don't know what is. Okay? I mean, these people are mentally ill. Mentally ill. And why? Because the Bible even talks about this. Because they refused to love the truth, God gave them over to a depraved mind. A perverted mind. When you worship the creation rather than the creator, and by the way, if you worship anybody or anything besides God, you are worshiping the creation. You can worship your motorcycle. You can worship your sports car. You can worship your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your significant other. And if you worship anyone or anything except the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you are reprobate, okay? Your brain. God promises us a sound mind. He promises the mind of Christ. He promises wisdom and knowledge. But the beginning of it is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear Him, you haven't even started. Your brain's in neutral. Your brain is in reverse. Your mind is twisted. And only Jesus can straighten it out. Here's another, I read another great article in World Net Daily this week talking about something I've been telling you for years. The article was all about fake Christianity in America and the damage that it's done. There's fake Christianity everywhere you look. Not only is there fake news, there's fake good news. <laughs> To get back to my point, why did I say all this? Because you know when they're going to say peace and safety? When you and I are gone. Right? The rapture of the church. We think the world is going to be devastated. and It's going to have some amazing effects on this world because if you've got a Christian pilot flying a plane full of people, they better hope and pray that the copa... In fact, at one time, I think this was back in the 70s or 80s, there was a, a report that went out claiming that some of the airlines were making sure that not both pilots were Christians. They wanted one, if one pilot was a Christian, they wanted a non-Christian next to him just in case the Bible was true and there really was a rapture, then there wouldn't be anybody left to fly the plane. That went around. I don't know if it was true or not. Makes sense. Makes sense. There's going to be some cataclysmic things that take place, but by and large, 
I will guarantee you, rather than the world weeping and wailing and mourning over the disappearance of millions of Christians, it's going to be party time, baby. They're going to be celebrating. Those wacky, weirdo, right-wing, fundamentalist, Bible-thumping, domestic terrorist, white supremacist. And you know what? You could be any color and be a white supremacist. Did you know? See, that's part of the deal here. You can now identify as anything you want to be. And at the same time, if you don't think the way they say you should think, if you don't believe the way they say you should believe, then it doesn't matter what color you are, you're a white supremacist. And you can be black and be a racist if you don't agree with what the consensus is by the liberal left-wing arm of our government and our society. Okay, again, there's no rationality, there's no logic, there's no reason because they're mentally ill. Michael Savage wrote a book years ago about how liberalism, I forget the exact title, but it was something to the effect that liberalism is a mental illness, psychological disease. Okay, well, we got through one verse so far. <laughs> when they shall say, they, they. And they're all about the pronouns now, aren't they? Yeah. Well, we can plug into that because they. When they shall say peace and safety. What happens then? Sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. All right, verse 2. <laughs> I kind of hate to move on. I'm having fun here. Okay, while he tasted the wine, and by the way, I don't think he was doing a, like a little wine tasting, you know? I think he was drunk as a skunk. Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. So ever since... The beginning of the Babylonian captivity when Nebuchadnezzar's army invaded Judah, took all the Hebrews captive, these precious articles that he had plundered from the temple in Jerusalem were still in possession of the kings of Babylon some 60 years or so later, and Belshazzar calls to bring them out. Bring out the gold and silver vessels. And notice it refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father, but understand something. The term father can simply mean predecessor on the throne. Or in this case, it may indicate that Belshazzar's mother, the wife of Nabonidus, was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, making Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's grandfather, something along those lines. There's a connection here, but we're not entirely sure what it was. But verse 3, they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. So everybody's joining in here, even the ladies, which we know oftentimes the ladies were separated from the men, but here they're all there together, drinking, having a good old time, and this becomes a blasphemous mockery of God and his people as they take these sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and begin to get drunk using those vessels. So verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. 
So his actions here, Belshazzar's actions and all those, of course, following his lead, demonstrate a deliberate defiance of the true God. They were worshiping the creation, as we talked about a few moments ago. They were worshiping the gods of, of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They were worshiping the creation rather than the creator. You can read all about that in Romans 1. Powerful, powerful chapter in the Bible. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Whose hand do you suppose this was? God's hand, yes, obviously the hand of God. <laughs> you got to love this. So you can see the king, he's, you know, sloppy drunk, having a good old time. All of a sudden, verse 6, the king's countenance changed. And uh, NIV, it says, his face turned pale. And his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. I mean, you've got to be pretty darn scared to have your knees knocking like that. It's usually something you only see in movies or cartoons. Suddenly, the prideful, arrogant ruler had his socks scared off of him. In verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the Democrats. No, it doesn't say that. Um, the king, okay, so <laughs> there's a lot of gnarly Republicans too, okay? All right? You've got power-hungry, money-grabbing people on both sides. And so as they say often in this world, you have to choose the lesser of two evils. And again, as I've said for so many years, people make an issue out of Democrat or Republican, but I, as I've already told you, look at the platform. Again, there's no guarantee they're going to do what they say they're going to do, but if they don't, then they have to answer to God for it, okay? But you look at the platforms, there's no contest, all right? One party's pro-life, one's pro-death, right? One's pro traditional biblical marriage ones marry anybody or anything marry your dog marry your cat marry your daughter marry your son marry and do whatever you want you can't vote for that and even you might say well they're not all like that but it's just kind of like if you stay in a church where they're teaching heresy then you become responsible as well because you're supporting it if you if you're in a church that's teaching false doctrine and you say, well, God's put me here to make a difference. No, he has not. No, he, God hasn't put you there to make a difference. You need to get out of there and go somewhere where they're actually teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God, the truth of God's word. Otherwise, you're supporting it. It's the same thing with politics. Maybe you're a good guy or a good girl in a bad party. The Bible talks about this. Bad company corrupts good morals. You hang around with bad guys, you're going to become a bad guy. If you want to be a good guy, you need to hang out with good guys. And that, where do you find them? In a church like this where people love Jesus. We're not perfect. We are sinners saved by grace. But we're trying to follow God. We're trying to do the right thing to be righteous. And if you want to be righteous, you need to hang out with people who are like-minded, of the same mind and the same heart. Because you will become like those you hang around with. The Bible says it. 
You don't have to take my word for it. Okay. So he cries out to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he calls in the same guys or their successors. You know, again, it is 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. The same guys or their successors, their descendants. He calls in the same group, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the same group that had proven worthless to Nebuchadnezzar so many years before. Remember, they couldn't do squat. And God sent Daniel in to rescue everyone. But he makes this promise. Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, shall be called the third ruler in the kingdom. Remember, Nabonidus the king is in Arabia. Belshazzar is his vice regent. So the third ruler would have been the one next in line to the throne if something were to happen to both Nabonidus and Belshazzar. I don't know why, but it just kind of reminded me of the Honeymooners. You remember that old TV show? Most of you probably don't. Well, maybe you do. I don't know if you're as old as I am. Where um, Ralph Cramden, Jackie Gleason, he tells, he tells his wife, Alice, I'm the king, Alice, and you're nothing. Remember that? I'm the king, and you're nothing. And Alice says, that's right, Ralph, you're the king of nothing. This whole scenario here just reminded me of that. <laughs> Verse 8, Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing. They couldn't even read it or make known to the king its interpretation. Surprise, surprise. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Belshazzar back together again. They didn't have a clue. So then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled his countenance was changed yet again, and his lords were astonished. So he went from being scared to really scared. He was desperate to know the meaning of this ominous apparition. I guess the only thing worse than receiving a supernatural message is not knowing what it means. Of course, this is where we get that expression, the handwriting is on the wall. comes directly from the Bible. Verse 10, the queen because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Now, remember the ladies were in there drinking with the men. This queen was not Belshazzar's wife, but the queen mother. She was either the wife of Nebuchadnezzar or the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, who had married Nabonidus, the current king. This was Belshazzar's mom. His wife was probably already in there with him. But because of the words of the king and his lords, she came into the banquet hall. Apparently this divine manifestation had created quite a loud reaction from the king and his lords. They're all getting pretty worked up in there. The happy, drunk atmosphere suddenly turned very dark. But she tries to calm him down. O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Not because she's trying to provide false comfort, but because she knows something that Belshazzar doesn't. Watch this. Look what she says to him next. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. 
or the holy gods, as most translations read. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. So this guy was over all of these other men that you've called in who can't do anything for you. As we know, the same expression she uses here, there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy God or the holy gods. Same expression was used by Nebuchadnezzar concerning Daniel years before, many years before, chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 18. Nebuchadnezzar refers to Daniel in this manner. She goes on, and this is why she's telling him, don't worry, there's hope here. Of course, she doesn't know what the message is. She just knows who can interpret it. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. Now, Daniel's an old man now, but his reputation was not forgotten by the queen mother. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Daniel's probably in retirement now, no longer holding that position. And it was kind of like the same scenario as what happened with Joseph, the pharaohs of Egypt. Joseph was number two in the land, remember? But then, of course, he died, and the Israelites wound up enslaved for over 400 years in Egypt. And they forgot about Joseph. Those pharaohs that had known him and respected him, admired him, honored him, were dead. And the new pharaoh didn't know anything about Joseph. He just wanted to use the Hebrew people as slaves. But Daniel was no longer remembered by the arrogant, idolatrous kings of Babylon. He'd been forgotten in his old age and his retirement. But the queen mother remembered. She goes on. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas was found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Notice the confidence she has in Daniel. She was around. She saw what happened many years before with Daniel, and she's confident that Daniel can get the job done. It reminded me of the fact that even pagans in times of desperation will call out to the true living God. Uh, there's an old expression, there are no atheists in foxholes. It's kind of interesting who people claim to not believe in God. When they get in trouble, they will pray. <laughs> but it's good to start praying before you get into trouble. Because you're already in trouble if you don't know him. All right, verse 12. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, we read that. All right, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. So Belshazzar at least has enough sense to listen to his mother call Daniel in. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Kind of seems to be something of a put-down, really, considering that under Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel had been elevated to the rank of prime minister and made regent of the king's college. Do you remember that? Head over all the wise men in Babylon. And so here, Daniel was much more than just an exile, but not to this prideful, arrogant slob 
who's about to lose his kingdom and die, or, or, you're, or the, you're that Daniel who was a, a captive from Judah, right? One of those Jewish uh, prisoners, slaves, whom my father the king brought from Judah. And so Daniel was from the same land whose God, Belshazzar, was holding in contempt, and now he's being called upon to help. One moment they're blaspheming the God of Israel by drinking getting drunk from the gold and silver cups of the temple. And now they're calling upon Daniel for help. Verse 14, I've heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and, or the holy gods, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they could read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And so like the uh, many religious charlatans of today, these so-called wise men, soothsayers, Chaldeans, and so forth, they were really only in it for the money, the power, the position, and the recognition. When push came to shove, they really were worthless, not valuable, particularly in terms of evaluating, analyzing, interpreting spiritual things. The Bible tells us that to the carnal mind, the carnal man, the spiritual things are not discernible, not understandable. You need the Spirit of God. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. That's what set Daniel and his friends apart from these Chaldeans, these charlatans. Verse 16, I've heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing, make known to me the interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck. Purple, the color of royalty, of course. Daniel's been there, done that. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And so, again, like many elitists today, Belshazzar, or Belly, as I like to call him, Belly, thought he could curry favor with Daniel by tempting him with earthly treasures. Sadly, we know that's how a lot of things play out in our world today, in our very own nation. Elitists, people who have money, who have power, bribe other people to help them with their schemes by making these kinds of promises to them. If you help me get elected, I'll put you in my cabinet i like to put them all in a cabinet somewhere and lock the door. Wouldn't you? All right, verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretations. So again, Daniel says, No thanks, been there, done that. Remember Nebuchadnezzar rewarded Daniel. Daniel didn't ask for it, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't even promise it to him beforehand, but as a way of honoring Daniel for all that he did for King Nebuchadnezzar, he was rewarded in various ways with titles and positions and material wealth. Daniel never asked for it. In this case, Belshazzar is trying to bribe him with it, and he says, no thanks, been there, done that. Daniel and here's the mark of a true man of God or a true woman of God. Daniel never could and never would be bought. 
The true prophet or man of God does not exchange the gifts of God for material gain. Dead giveaway. And there's plenty of those folks around today, those types. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel's telling him, what I do, I do for God. I'll do it for free. My paycheck comes from the Most High. Remember the Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts, Acts 8, beginning in verse 18. When Simon the sorcerer saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. So folks, we need to know, we need to understand, we need to recognize anyone who charges money for fortune-telling, interpreting dreams, palm-reading, giving prophecies like Balaam did in the Old Testament, praying special prayers. How many of those guys have you seen on TV? Send in your offering. We'll pray for you. We'll pray over your prayer request. What was that guy's name? I can't remember his name now, but they found whole big dumpsters full of prayer requests behind his building that people had sent in that he was supposed to be praying over. And I guess you could argue, well, he'd already prayed over them and now they were just getting rid of them. I don't know, but there's, there's so many phony, fake charlatans like that out there that uh, deprive people of resources that they really need just to survive. Many times it's elderly people, it's retired people on a limited or fixed income, but they're deceived into sending them their money. But anyone who does that is a charlatan at the very least and a servant of Satan at the worst. But not our beloved Daniel. And so he promises the king, I will do it for you, no charge. The only problem is the king's not going to like the interpretation of the message. Next week's going to be loads of fun. Let's stand. Mini, mini, tekalu, farson. You remember what that means? You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. So Belshazzar is about to meet his end here. We'll look at that next week. Good news, good old Daniel's still around. And he has some important things to tell us in the next few chapters. Before we go to the Lord in prayer, let's bow our heads. And if you have a prayer request, please raise your hand right now. Father God, you see each hand. You know each heart. We've talked about the fact, Lord, today that you have promised to give us a sound mind, a clear mind, the mind of Christ. And so we pray for that today, Lord. We know that our thinking can become skewed and twisted by the bad influences in this world. We ask for deliverance from those things. And Lord, we lift up health issues today. We know that that's a major thing for people, especially as they get older. But Lord, we're living in a world with more and more afflictions, and it's kind of indicative of the fact that we're in the last days, the end times, that actually now our nation for many, many years has had a, a death rate that's the uh, average lifespan has gone up and up and up, and now it's starting to drop. I believe that's another indication that we're in the last days. But, Lord, the good news is in Christ we live forever.
We need not fear death. And I ask that you would banish from anyone and everyone here today that's struggling with that. Banish from them any and all fear of death, Lord. Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But Lord, we pray for peace, for comfort, for strength, for those who are struggling with health issues. We pray for healing, Lord. You are our healer. You are the divine physician. You're the great physician, the God who heals. And we pray for healing for all kinds of health issues, Father, whatever it might be. We know that nothing is too big for you. We pray for encouragement, for comfort, for strength, for hope, for faith, for endurance and deliverance, Lord, from physical illness and pain. In Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for mental and emotional issues. Those can be just as difficult as health issues, physical issues, mental, emotional issues, uh, anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, and so forth. We pray for healing from those things as well, for deliverance, Father, that you'd pour out your spirit upon your people and deliver them from these debilitating feelings, thoughts, emotions. Lord, we pray that you'd help us, as your word says, to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Lord, guard our hearts and minds, we pray, with your, your peace that passes all understanding. Lord, we pray for, for economic issues. Those are major today in the world we're living in. Even in this nation, the most prosperous nation in history, many are struggling. The economic situation's not looking great, but we know that you're our provider. Help us to keep our eyes on you, trusting in you, believing in you to take care of us and to provide for us that we would not give way to fear or doubt. Pray for provision, for, for income, for jobs. Lord, however you choose to do it, we recognize that ultimately you are our provider. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we pray for restoration and healing of marriages that are in trouble, friendships, relationships, work relationships, neighborhood relationships, whatever arena of life, Lord, that these relationships revolve around. We pray for healing and restoration where there's been uh, anger, bitterness, resentment, offense. Lord, help us to be as believers those who are not easily offended and help us to make every effort not to offend those around us, to be considerate, Lord, of others, that we wouldn't live as an entity unto ourselves, but we would recognize that we have a responsibility as representatives of Christ to put our best foot forward and to show people the love of God. We pray for healing and restoration and forgiveness wherever there's damage done in a marriage or friendship or any kind of a relationship, Father. Employee, employer, employee to employee, whatever it is. And we pray that you help us to stay humble before you, Lord, because we know that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So we thank you and we praise you for your word, the power. Your word is so alive and active and dynamic. Lord, help us to take the truths that we've learned today with us and to digest them, ingest them, feed upon them, to learn from them and become stronger in our faith and our walk with you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.